Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. Well, how many of you guys are ready? You're fired up and excited for another amazing message in the book Song of Solomon that we're calling The Bible's Guide to a Better Marriage. How many of you guys are fired up? Go ahead, machine gun the click like button on the live stream. Click share right now and then lower your expectations, okay? Because today's sermon is probably not gonna be as as exciting as you think it's gonna be. The exciting sermon's gonna come next week, but this week, today we're gonna have a very important conversation around the biblical worldview of sex and sexuality. I told you, lower your expectations a little bit, but this is very important. One of the questions that I get asked all the time at Redemption is, Pastor Byron, why do you teach so much about sex? Actually, I talk about sex for two reasons. One, the Bible talks about sex a lot. And two, everywhere you look, we live in a culture and a society that really is talking all about sex. And one of the biggest issues that people struggle with, from my experience, especially in the church, comes around this issue of sex and sexuality. Young adults in their 20s and 30s, they're struggling with temptations when it comes to sex and sexuality, pornography, cohabitation, relationship, hookup, shack up, breakup, repeat the process all over again. Teenagers have questions regarding sex and sexuality, junior high, high schoolers, and even those who are married have frustrations around the subject of sex within their marriage as well. It's a big problem and a lot of people have questions and so the Bible actually answers these questions and so that's one of the reasons that we talk about it. And we talk about it because the culture and the world talks about it all the time. Whenever you turn on the TV, there you have it. They're talking about sex. Everything you watch from the news, from movies, primetime television, daytime talk shows, the subject matter refers around sex. When you go on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they're all talking about sex. Even politics has a lot to say when it comes to sex and sexuality. And everywhere in the world is talking about sex. But then when the church talks about it, all of a sudden, whoa, you can't say those things. You can't talk about that. And then people assume that the church is repressed or outdated and bigoted and all of these different reasons. And so there is silence and crickets when it comes to sex as a conversation within the church, but the Bible talks about it, and so we're going to talk about it. In fact, God wrote an entire book of the Bible called Song of Solomon that really is dealing with the joys and the freedom that comes within sex, comes into marriage, and so we're having an honest conversation today around that subject, and when it comes to a worldview of sex, there really is only three positions of sex. Three perspectives, shouldn't have said it like that. There's only three perspectives when it comes to sex and sexuality. The first position is that sex is God, that people worship it, they give their time, their energy, their devotion towards it. It defines their life, it defines their identity, and then they live their life based upon their sex and sexuality. That's sex as God. An overreaction to that is sex as gross. This is typically what you hear in the church and fundamental youth groups that sex is dirty, nasty, and wrong, so save it for the one that you love, which really sends a very confusing message to a lot of teenagers. 
And then there's the third position, the position that we take, and one of the reasons we talk about sex and sexuality so much is because the Bible presents sex as a gift. If you've read Real Marriage by Mark Driscoll, this is gonna sound very familiar. I recommended that book in the Connect page before we started this series, but it's such an important teaching, I wanna be able to share it with you because we believe and we've been teaching that sex is a gift from God for a husband and wife to enjoy within the marriage. In fact, the Bible talks a lot about sex, and it's not just in Song of Solomon. It goes all the way back to the very beginning, the book of Genesis, the book of the beginnings, where everything has its origin. One of the first things we see is that God created sex and sexuality. In Genesis 1, here's what we read. So God, who's that? That is the creator of heaven and earth. That is God. God created it. God made it. God designed it, and God is going to tell us exactly why he did that. And a lot of people want to argue with the scriptures, but really you're arguing with God, the one who made it, created it, and tells us what it's for. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, He created them. What is that? That is gender. That is sex. That is sexuality. That God created us male and female. Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Therefore, I will make a helper fit for him. We covered that last week. The term helper is not a denigrated or derogatory term for woman. Rather, it means companion. It means close confidant. It means friend. In fact, in John 16, Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as our helper. And so It's actually honoring and valuing women. It is not putting them down. And this is a picture of what marriage is supposed to be. One man, one woman. We covered that. We're moving forward in 224. Therefore, a man, this is a verse for all you single dudes. Okay, therefore, a man will leave his mother and father, move out of your house, get a job, then find you a nice girl. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast, cling to, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That's the sexual union. Verse 24. And then man and his wife, they were both naked, or as we say in Texas, naked. They were naked, and they were not ashamed. So there's six things here that we learned from creation. The first thing that we learned is this, is that God made us male and female in his image and likeness. No matter what culture says, no matter what society says, there is two genders. There is male and there is female. I know that this is taboo to say in the world that we live in today, but this is the way that God designed it, God defined it. There's two genders, male and female. On Facebook, you can select 72 genders and orientations, but according to the Bible, there's only two, and when you're made male or female, God says it is very good. The second thing that we learn is this, is that marriage is between one man and one woman in a covenant for life. If anybody ever wondered, where does Redemption Church stand when it comes to the the teachings of sex and sexuality? Here's where we stand. Genesis 1 teaches us very clearly that it's to be one man, one woman in a covenant for life. The third thing we read is that sex is actually created by God. Sex designed us, male and female, in a way to where sex is a gift within the marriage. It's not like God made the man and woman stepped out to go grab a coffee, came back and the bushes were rocking and he couldn't come a knocking. No, God designed it. God made it that way. And then the fourth thing we learn is this, 
that any sex outside of biblical heterosexual marriage is classified as sin because it goes against the designs in which God made. The fifth thing we learn is that sex is to be done in such a way that there is no shame. And here's the reason why, because sex is a gift. Now, how many of you have noticed that we are no longer living in Genesis chapter two? You ever noticed that? Like that part about being naked and unashamed? I like that part. What happened to that part? I love that part. What happened? Well, Genesis three comes along. We only had this experience for two chapters of the Bible. Some of you are wondering, where did everything go wrong? How come we can't have that? How come things aren't the way that they're supposed to be? When I turn on the TV, there's bad news, worse news, and oh my God, I can't believe this is still happening news. What happened? The Bible opens up with this beautiful portrait and picture of what life is supposed to be. That comes in Genesis 3. Genesis 3.1. Now, Satan was crafty, more crafty than anything else, and he comes to our first parents, Adam and Eve, and he lies to them. He tempts them, and they give into the temptation to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as they partake, everything in the world becomes broken, fractured, and flawed. They sinned against God, they rebelled against him, and their relationship was severed and fractured, and we've been falling ever since. And here's what they did. When they sinned, they ran and they hid from God. Here's what Genesis 3 tells us. God comes looking for them. You need to understand, this is the storyline of the Bible, that we sin against God, and God, he seeks us, that we run from God, and God, he pursues after us. And God began to pursue after Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, 9, 10. Here's what it says. God came looking for them and said, where are you? Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I I hid myself. God created them to be naked and without shame. Satan comes along and he lies to them. They sin and what's the result of sin? They are naked and ashamed. What you need to know, the sixth point of creation is this. Whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. God creates good. Satan counterfeits with evil. God creates life. Satan counterfeits with death. God creates the world to be perfect, upright, and good. Satan comes along and he counterfeits it with lies, with deceit, and with destruction. God creates love. Satan creates lust. God creates light. Satan comes in and he brings darkness. God is the kingdom of God. And then Satan comes along and he counterfeits the kingdom of God. God with the kingdoms of this world. Satan cannot create anything because he himself is a created being, but he can twist, he can lie, he can deceive, he can manipulate, corrupt, and co-opt whatever it is that God creates. Whatever God creates, Satan hates and Satan counterfeits. How many of you ever seen a counterfeit? You ever seen a counterfeit? The world is filled with counterfeits. What are some things that the world attempts to counterfeit? Like Gucci bags, right? Ladies, if you bought a purse for $20, a high-end designer purse at the swap meet, just so you know, that ain't the real thing. That's a counterfeit. People counterfeit shoes, people bootleg DVDs, people counterfeit all sorts of things. I was at Kroger the other day and I saw a counterfeit Chick-fil-A sauce. They called it sandwich sauce. Just so you know, that's demonic because anything that is a counterfeit ultimately is demonic. God creates Chick-fil-A, amen, hallelujah, that's God's chicken. Satan counterfeits with chicken sandwich sauce. And so here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to know, that God has a plan. 
And many of us, we have grown up and lived in a culture that has sold us a counterfeit and that we have believed lies, especially around the subject of sex and sexuality. And there's the one truth that God made sex and he designed it to be good, that it is a gift. But then Satan comes along and he wants us to believe a lie, a counterfeit, and here's the two big counterfeits. The first is that sex as a God. The second one is sex is gross. Now, when it comes to our culture, what do you believe is the most prevalent in society? Sex as God, ding, 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 you win. Bingo, sex is a God. Now, people wouldn't say that they worship sex, but here's the definition of worship. It's glory and sacrifice. Glory is what you see as preeminent, that you wanna have it, you need to have it, you want it, you revel in it, you watch it, you listen to it. The same way that those of us who are Christians watch sermons and listen to worship, those who worship sex as God watch nudity and pornography on the television and listen to it in their music and talk shows because that's how they glory in it and then they make sacrifices for it. That is form of worship. Now people wouldn't say sex as God, but the way that we live our lives and the things that we see and how we become desensitized to a sexualized culture and nation just goes to show how deep our worship truly goes. I was talking with someone last night and I said, a young woman, I said, do you believe that we live in a sexualized culture or have people become desensitized to it? And through the course of the conversation, what we realized is that we swim in sexuality the same way that a fish swims in water, but we are unaware of it because we live in a culture that is immersed with sex as God. And now some people, you hear this and you think, oh, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. This is the way many in churches say, the world is so terrible, the world is so bad, everything is falling apart, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quick. I'm reading Revelation and getting out my rapture charts and drawing on my ammo box with crayon, wondering when the second coming is gonna come. Lord Jesus, come quick. But just so you know, there is a long-standing history of people worshiping sex as God. In fact, after Genesis chapter three, the fall, it doesn't happen very long until sex comes in and begins to corrupt and counterfeit the way that God created it to be. In fact, in Genesis 19, God actually destroyed an entire city named Sodom and Gomorrah because the men in that city wanted to have sex with angels. Okay, just so you know, that's weird and that's wrong. And so this has a long-standing history. Song of Solomon, even included, was written 3,000 years ago. And as we've dived into studying this book, what you need to know is that God is speaking through the Holy Spirit in Song of Solomon to a culture that is surrounded by people who worship sex as God. They were known as the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were the enemies of God's people. And when you study in Canaanite religion, the depictions of their gods are all very crass, very very crude and very sexualized. And so their gods and goddesses would be covered with multiple breasts. Their poetry would be depicting women as objects or as pieces of property or commodity for men. The way that the Canaanites would worship is in the center of their cities, they would have large phallic symbols, basically giant penises, where people would gather around, have orgies and incest as a way to worship their god. In fact, there was two main gods. There was the god of Molech and there was the god of Asheroth. The way that you would worship the God of Molech is that you would take your child and then sacrifice them on the altar. 
The way that you would worship the God Asheroth is you would set your living child on fire as a sacrifice to your God because they worship sex as their God. And sex always requires sacrifice when it comes to worshiping that God. And then as you flash forward to the New Testament, the same thing is going on in a city known as Corinth. There's two books of the Bible written to the Corinthians, and a lot of it deals with questions around sex and sexuality. Paul planted the church at Corinth, and as young believers were coming in, they had tons of questions. And so in chapter after chapter, Paul's just answering their questions around sex and sexuality. And the reason why that culture was so steeped in that is because Greek and Roman thinking. And so in Greek and Roman cultures, it was normal for men to have sex with little boys. It was actually considered a sign of wealth and power for pedophilia to take place. In fact, Rome on two occasions had to write laws forcing men to have sex with their wives because they would rather have sex with other men or with prostitutes because they saw children as a burden and there was an uncoupling of sex and children when it came to their sexuality. And the reason is is because Epaphroditus is the form of worship for them in this region. And there were to be a large temple to the goddess of Epaphroditus. And you would go into the temple, just like we would come into church, and then instead of raising your hands to worship, you would actually have sex with temple prostitutes. There was 1,000 temple prostitutes, women, who lived in their temple solely for the purpose of men to come in and have sex with them because they worshiped sex as God. Now, you hear all of this, and here we are in the 21st century, and you think, there's no way that we're doing that anymore. There's no way that that's what's happening. I mean, we're so, more, so much more evolved. Those people, they're primitive people. They're ancient and archaic. We have so much more today. We have made leaps and bounds when it comes to sex and sexuality. In fact, it hasn't actually gotten much better. Right now, there are 30 million women and children who are being sold into sex slavery. In the United States of America, there are 300,000 children that go missing and are sold into sex slavery in the world today. We are no different than the Canaanites nor the Romans. We are still sacrificing women on the altars of sex. And it goes even deeper than that. And all of this really stems from one big major problem, and it's that of pornography. The big switch in American sexuality took place in the 1960s and 70s. You and me were a part of a social experiment that nobody knew the outcome would be. And right now, we're suffering the consequences for it. People actually talk about free love and the benefits of casual sex. In fact, there is no free love or benefits to casual sex. Instead, what we are experiencing as a culture is really the consequences of a social experiment started by one man man named Alfred Kinsley. Now, Kinsey, he's the leader of what is known as the Kinsey Institute. And what he did is he wanted to take a big survey of America, and he wanted to prove that Americans in particular were more sexually deviant and repressed than what previously people believed. And so he set about launching the Kinsey Institute, and he did a massive survey, and he came out that people have more nefarious sexual desires, and he wanted to remove sexuality from the teachings of the church and the Bible and destroy the nuclear family. And so he released all of this, which led to the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s, which as a result led to the modern 
um, modern sexual re-education, birth control, no-fault divorce laws, the LGBTQ community, the feminist movement, and it led to all of these different things, chiefly at the result of pornography. Do you know who the number one donor to the sexual re-education of America was in the 60s? The first person to give to it was none other than Hugh Hefner of Playboy fame. If pornography and sex is God, then pornography is the priest. Now, what's interesting about this is that several decades later, Kinsey's reports and findings were actually debunked because he lied. He lied about it. Instead of interviewing a sample size of Americans in culture, he interviewed prisoners, felonies, pedophiles, prostitutes, and young women who were molested and raped. And then he said, this is the sample size for America, and they actually had to debunk his teachings, but it was too late because the sexual revolution had already begun. And many of us, we have been brainwashed by living into this form of society. And so you wonder, how is this going? How has this affected our world, our life, and our worldview? Is it better? Let me just read you some stats. Here's what we read from Real Marriage by Mark and Grace Driscoll and several other resources. If you're in the Connect page later this week, I will drop a lot of links so you can go research and do your homework on your own. Pornography itself is a $100 billion year in industry. 200 adult films are made every week, and this research was before adult websites allowed individuals to upload their own amateur videos, and so I'm sure it is a lot more now than it was then. Moving on, one out of uh, one adult film is made every hour. One out of eight Google requests are people looking for more porn. The average age that a child views porn for the first time is age 11. Some of you are wondering, is Song of Solomon enough for my junior high student? When should I talk to them? Most likely, it's too late. If you have not had a conversation with your children, most children view pornography inadvertently by the age of 11. Today, according to... Um, the national campaign of teen pregnancy, 40% of junior hires and high school girls have sent naked or sexual illicit pictures of themselves to other students or strangers on the internet, and 15% of those are eight-year-olds. Moving on. But this doesn't only affect our view of sex, but rather our view of sexuality. There is a there's a, a researcher out of the Boston University of Health Sciences, and she says that according to experts, porn shapes the way that we view women, that we begin to view sexuality of women, that one, they want sex from men at all times, two, women enjoy whatever it is that a man fantasizes or desires, three, women who do not meet the criteria of one and two can be forced through coercion, abuse, or degradation, and number four, that women are not seen as people, but rather as parts to be dominated dominated by men at women's expense. This is the result of a society where young boys grow up looking at porn. They no longer respect women. Moving forward, one out of four girls will be raped, sexually assaulted, or molested during their lifetime. 18% of pregnancies end in abortion. Last year, there were nearly 1 million abortions in America, 30 million abortions worldwide. And since the 1960s and 70s, with Roe versus Wade, there's been over 60 million abortions committed in America alone. Just like the Canaanites and the Romans, we are still murdering babies and abusing women on the altar of our gods. We are no different than them. How does this affect marriage? The divorce rate in America since the 60s and 70s has increased by half. 
that originally it was 25% of marriages. Now today it's nearly half of marriages, 50% in America. Now to be fair, in recent years, people will say that the divorce rate has gone down and that is actually true. And you think, well, that means everything's getting better. In fact, that's not true because instead of getting married, people are moving in and living with one another known as cohabitation. From 1967 to 2006, cohabitation rates in America have moved from 1 million to 5 5 million people. The most likely person to cohabitate is a person in their early 20s, so pretty much half of the congregation of redemption, and here's the reason why. Most young women, according to USA Today, see cohabitation as a step towards marriage. They think, if I live with them and sleep with them, then eventually he's going to marry me. The problem is that men do not see cohabitation as a step towards marriage, but actually as a way for them to delay commitment while reaping the benefits of a sexual relationship. And so here's what we see when it comes to cohabitation. USA Today says when those interviewed, the majority of men see it as a way to increase sex and postpone, commu- postpone commitment. And here's what the survey article said. Research is clear. One thing that men and women both agree on is that their standards for a live-in partner is lower than what they would actually expect out of a spouse. So what are the results of cohabitation before marriage? It's not a step towards a better marriage. In fact, cohabitation is a step towards a bitter end in divorce. Cohabitating couples have higher divorce rates than couples who do not, three times a higher divorce rate than the national average. Cohabitating women are more likely to suffer from depression twice as likely to be physically or sexually assaulted. Men who cohabitate are four times more likely to cheat on their partners than men who are married. Women who are cohabitating are eight times more likely to commit adultery and to cheat on their partner or spouse. It is not a step towards marriage. It is not preparation towards marriage. It is actually a step backwards. We move forward and we see that women who cohabitate more likely to suffer physical, sexual assault and violence, nine times more likely to be murdered while cohabitating. And here's the reason why. Because sex is not biological. Sex is not casual. Sex is deeply spiritual It is a way in which we worship. And as we live in a culture that worships sex as God, people must be sacrificed. And here's what we see in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Right now, that's what I'm doing. Right now, I am appealing to you to not see sex as God. I am appealing to you to open your eyes at the culture and climate that we live in. I am appealing to you and every person who has clicked off the live stream or gotten walked up out of this room today, you are not walking out because I am differing with your opinion, but rather because I am attacking your God that we worship sex as God and we need to repent of that, open our eyes that have blinded us. I am appealing to you from the very word of God. Brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Worship is not just the songs that we sing. Worship is what we do with our bodies. People say, what does God have to say about my body? Remember, he is the creator and he made us male and female. God made us and God has something to say about what we do, how we live when it comes to our bodies. What you do with your body matters. That's why when we worship, you're raising 
lifting your hands, you're singing, you're dancing, moving, you're worshiping with your body. And when we have sex outside of marriage, apart from God's design, we are laying our bodies on a altar as a living sacrifice to someone or something. Everybody's a worshiper. You may be saying, I'm an atheist, I'm an agnostic, but yet you are still a worshiper because we give our lives as living sacrifices to what we glory in and give ourselves to. Sex is extremely spiritual because it is an act of worship. And more than that, it really is idolatry. Do you know what idolatry is? Idolatry is when someone or something takes the place of God in your life. I tell this to people who are cohabitating, young women or men who move in with their partners. And I tell, they say, but we're Christians. We're married in our hearts. It's all going to be okay. God doesn't judge. What I tell them is this. No, you have made that person an idol in your life. You had a choice to choose between Jesus or them. And you chose Jesus or oh, you chose them over Jesus as an act of worship. That you have presented your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's idolatry. Listen, sex is a good thing, but it makes a terrible God. Sex is a good thing in the right place. It is enjoyable. It is a blessing. It is a freedom. But sex in the wrong place will lead to destruction, devastation, broken relationships, and men and women and children for generations who have been laid on the altar of sex as God. And in the end, it results in death. That sex is God. Now, as an overreaction to that, People come up with sex is gross. They would say, well, here's the way the world is, and we don't want to be like the world, and so we're not going to engage in, talk about, we're not going to teach over it. We don't want to have these conversations because, ooh, that's nasty, sex is gross. This is where the church is. If the world talks about it all the time, the church is silent because of this bad Bible teaching around the subject of sex and sexuality. Now, there's two reasons that people see sex as gross. The first reason is because you were laid on the altar of someone else's God. And I want to be very, very sensitive with this. One out of four women, one out of 10 men will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. And for those who are sexually assaulted, sex can be seen as something that is dirty and gross. And you wonder how in the world could it be seen as a gift when it's brought so much pain and suffering in my life? And I want to know if that's you. I want you to know that we love you. Our whole church prays for you. I want you to know that there is hope, there is healing, and there is health for you as you are filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe that God wants to change your mind around that. And so I want to be very, very sensitive. I, I was doing counseling with a couple as they were getting ready for marriage. And the woman actually confessed to her fiance, now husband, that when she was a little girl, she was molested. And she broke down crying and he broke down crying and wept over her and they began to pray together and God brought great healing into that relationship. It is possible for God to renew your mind and change the way that you see those things. Get the help that you need. But the other reason that people think sex is gross is simply because the church has mishandled it, mistaught it, and there's been abuse when it comes to teachings over sex and sexuality. In fact, no book of the Bible has been more misinterpreted than the book Song of Solomon. <laughs> People will read it and say, that can't be what that means. There's no way. You can't teach that in the church. That's inappropriate for a Sunday morning. People might get the wrong opinions. And here, here's what happens. When the church doesn't teach that sex is a 
a gift. Kids grow up thinking it's gross. And then when they hit high school or college, they switch over to sex as God. And they think, well, the church has nothing to teach me or tell me. And so I'm going to go out here and I'm going to learn from the world. And if we don't teach our kids or if we don't teach others that sex is actually a gift, then people will come to the erroneous counterfeit conclusion that sex is gross. Listen, Satan don't care if you think sex is God. He wants to get you to also believe that sex is gross because then you will not enjoy it the way that God created it. And so both are counterfeits to God's intention and design. We see this in Song of Solomon. People are like, that can't possibly be what that means. So in Song of Solomon 1.13, from week two, here's what we read. She says, my beloved to me is a sachet of myrrh between my breasts. People will hear that and they say, oh, no, we can't talk about sachets and myrrhs and breasts in church. That can't possibly be what that means. So they reinterpret it. Here's the reinterpretation. One commentator says that, that, that each breast, I never know what to do with my hands when I talk like that. I'll put them in my pocket. <laughs> each, each breast <laughs> represents the angels on either side of the Ark of the Covenant. That's weird. And then one commentator said that the two breasts represent the criminals on crosses that Jesus hung between and that Jesus is the sachet of myrrh on Mount Calvary and each breast represents the criminals. Just so you know, ladies don't like it when you call them criminals, okay? <laughs> That's not what it means. Here's what it means. God created sex to be enjoyed as a gift within marriage between a husband and a wife and it is okay for you to enjoy that gift. That's what it means, and because we live in a culture and even grow up in churches that believe counterfeit lies when it comes to sex and sexuality, what I want to do today is teach the biblical perspective that sex is a gift, which leads us to Song of Solomon chapter 613. That was my introduction. Hey, are you guys ready to dive into Song of Solomon and see sex as a gift? Are you ready to see sex as the way that God designed, God defined, God wants for us to enjoy within marriage? Are you ready? Are y'all still hanging out with me? Are you still there? Okay, if you're not ready, don't worry. We're gonna do it anyway. Buckle up, buttercup, because here's what we're gonna see. Sex is a gift. The song title today is gonna be called The Dance of Mahanaim. You think, that's interesting. Why would it be called the dance of Maha name? Well, it comes from 613 where it says this, return, return, O Shulamite, that we may look upon you. He speaks, why should you look upon the Shulamite, that is his wife, that is the woman, as upon a dance between two armies? If you look at the asterisk in your Bible and you go all the way down to the footnotes in the bottom, it will say the dance of Maha name. You say, what is that? That is an ancient Hebrew striptease in the Bible, naked and without shame, the way that God intended and desired it to be. And so we're gonna see the way that God creates sex and sexuality within a marriage between a husband and wife to enjoy, to be naked and without shame. And they're gonna get naked and there ain't gonna be no shame in their game. And some of you are gonna hear this coming from a sex as God perspective, and you say, wait, Christians can't do that. That's our thing. No, that's our thing, and you stole it. And then others are going to come from a sex is gross perspective and say, no, we can't do that. We're Christians. No, you were stolen from. And this is what God wants to recreate for us. 
Not counterfeits to sex and sexuality, but sex the way that God created it and God can make it be in your marriage. We're gonna read the way that God intended. Sex is a gift. Here's what we see. How beautiful are your feet and sandals? Guys, you wonder, why does my wife always want new shoes? It's in the Bible. How beautiful are your feet and sandals? Let her buy the shoes. Get the shoes. Let her get the shoes. Because she's just being biblical. I don't know what it is, but they like shoes. He compliments her feet. Now, if you remember back into week three, when he was talking about her sexually, he started with her what? Eyes. And then he worked his way down. Here we see he's getting creative. He's starting with her feet. And he's going to work his way up, up, all the way up. She is dancing for her husband. He starts with the feet. How beautiful are your feet and sandals? Oh, noble daughter, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. I just imagine almost like on the Christmas story movie where the, the little boy Alfie's riding his hand up the lamp, right? That's exactly what he's doing right there. He's just going, Right up there, he says, your legs are like rounded jewels. I'd probably just ruin that Christmas movie for you. But for those of you who are married, maybe I made it better. I don't know. Oh, noble daughter, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Now, listen, he is not objectifying this woman. He calls her, oh, most noble of daughter. He is valuing her. He is speaking life into her. He is honoring her. He is saying that she is made in the image and likeness of God. For those of you who struggle with sexual sin, it's because you do not see that other person as a child of God. You do not see them as made in the image and likeness of God because you would not treat God's children that way. If those of you who come from a purely humanistic, secular, feminist background, you cannot get to that perspective outside of the Bible. There is no way to see value and equality and worth apart from the Bible. God here, he is honoring women from Genesis 3 that we are made in this image and likeness. Oh, most noble of daughter. Verses where he speaks life into her, saying your neck is like the tower of David, that you are strong, you are confident, you are bold, that you are someone who is valued. You don't get that from any other form of religion or teaching except for the Bible. This is written 3,000 years ago in a culture that worships sex as God. But yet we see in the Bible, oh, most noble of daughters, because she is a daughter of God. And he, were, he, 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 were, he gives her worthy and value. He is not objectifying her, but rather he is worshiping God alongside of her. Your navel is a round bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Do I need to interpret that for you? Can y'all get that? You're like, is that a belly button? Or I've never seen a moist belly button. That's not a belly button. <laughs> He says, your navel, I'm moving on, okay? Your navel is a round bowl. If I have to interpret that for you, Lord help us. Your navel is a round bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts, here we go with the breasts again. Your two breasts. Solomon keeps repeating that there's two of them. 
He likes to count. Your two breasts are like twin fawns, baby deer, the twins of a gazelle. Your neck is an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel. She has long flowing black hair, locks that are like purple. A king is held captive in his tresses. Listen, this is the way that God intended for men to be, to be one women men. Titus talks about to be a one woman man, that your eyes, your heart, your desire is attuned and affixed and solely devoted totally towards your wife. Job talks about making a covenant with your eyes and that comparing your spouse to anything else will ruin and rob your intimacy. You want to be a king that is held captive in his tresses by the beauty and the splendor and the wonder that is your wife. This is the way that God designed sex to be, that you would be held captive, captivated, devoted to one another. The king is held captive in his tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all of your delights. God has given you everything in marriage that you need to be satisfied. Your spouse has everything you need. You don't have to go looking somewhere else for something else. Your spouse already has everything you need to be satisfied. Your stature, he says, is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb that palm tree and I will lay a hold of its fruit. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters on the vine. The scent of your breath is like apples. Those are aphrodisiacs. And your mouth is the best wine. She says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. And then it closes with this, verse 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. That word there, desire, is the Hebrew word tashuka. Can you say that together? Tashuka. Everybody say it together. Tashuka. Say it at home. Tashuka. Go ahead and type it in the comments. Tashuka. God bless you. (laughs) Here's what that word means. Have you ever been watching the animal planet where maybe a lion is creeping through the Sahara and then he sees a gazelle and you think, oh, that's so beautiful. And then all of a sudden the lion goes, jumps on the gazelle. You seen that? You seen that? That is Tashuka. What she is saying is this, my husband, he Tashukas me. But I also Tashuka my husband. This is the way that it's supposed to be, that our desires are good things. The sexual desires that we have were created by God, designed by God, given to us by God as a gift for us to enjoy in marriage with one another. God gave it to us as a gift, but then Satan comes along, he takes the good from God, twists it, corrupts it, counterfeits it, and sells us a lie. It's where our desires are no longer for our spouse, but our desires now become for ourself and that we live our lives bent in towards self and sin and sexual desires that lead us further and further away from God. That God created as a gift, Satan comes along, he counterfeits it because all Satan wants to do is counterfeit whatever God creates. 
That God creates life, Satan counterfeits life with death. God creates joy, Satan counterfeits joy with grief. God creates blessings, Satan comes along, takes the blessing of God, twists it, corrupts it, to where now we live in life of curses. God creates life to be in the kingdom of God. Satan comes along, he counterfeits the kingdom of God with the kingdoms of this world. God created sex to be a gift where a husband and wife can enjoy love, but Satan hates love. You need to know that Satan hates love because God is love and whatever God is, Satan hates and Satan hates love and so he counterfeits love with lust. That's where many of us struggle with today because we can't tell the difference between love and lust. We have counterfeits. And we've been lived and inoculated in a society where we become so familiar with the counterfeits, we no longer can tell what the genuine is. We're like fish swimming in water that we don't know what water is. We have been sold a bill of lies. We have become so conformed to the counterfeits that now the true genuine thing seems fake. And so what I want to do today is I want to hold up the real thing versus the counterfeit. I wanna show you the difference between love and lust and allow you to begin to make the difference and see which one is best. I used to wait tables. And when I waited tables, someone handed me a $100 bill to pay for it. And I wanted to cash out all my checks and I wanted to keep that $100 bill. I went to the bank and I said, here we go. Boom, slammed it down, very proud. Because waiting tables, you know, your job is to make a $100 bill every night. And I went to the bank and I went to hand them that $100 bill. And they said, we can't take it. Why? Because it's a counterfeit. I said, how do you know it's a counterfeit? And they took out their little pin. They rubbed it across the top. And there you you see it. It's, It's the counterfeit. I said, well, how did you recognize it so fast? And she said, whenever you study the real thing and you compare it to the fake thing, it's easier for you to be able to recognize. Many of us, we've become so familiar with the counterfeit to where now the real thing goes unrecognized in our lives. So what I want to do is I want to close in the same way that I opened by showing you six counterfeits to God's creation, primarily love versus lust. The first thing we see is that love is to be serving, but lust is selfish. Here's what we read in Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. One of the questions that I've been getting asked all through Song of Solomon is this question. What is permissible for us to do sexually within marriage? Now, for those of you who are not married, what is permissible? Nothing. Keep your hands to yourself. The question is not, where is the line? If you're asking the question, how far can I go before it's too far? If you have to ask the question, you've already crossed the line. Because the question for you is not, where is the line? The question is, where is the heart? And if you have to ask that question, your heart's already in the wrong place because you're selfish rather than serving one another in the way that Christ has served us. For those of you who are married, what is permissible? The answer is, whatever. For you have been having freedom. You have freedom in your marriage as long as it fits the created design of God that we saw in the beginning. So one man, one woman in marriage, there is freedom for you. Whatever your spouse agrees to, feeling honored and valued and served of, then that's all fair play for you. But if you're asking your spouse to do something for you beyond their desires, 
for your own sexual gratification, then you're no longer serving your spouse. You are being selfish with one another. And that's the reason why he says, do not do anything out of selfish ambition to give freedom to the opportunity of flesh, but through love, serve one another. Sexually, are you serving your spouse? Is there a mutual submission, surrender, and joy and satisfaction between that? If so, you have been called to freedom. If you're trying to get your spouse to do something for you that you saw in porn or for some previous relationship, that is not serving your spouse, that is selfish. That is serving yourself. Here's what we see in Song of Solomon. She says, gliding over lips and teeth. What we see in Song of Solomon is a passionate display of a woman serving her husband. Gliding over lips and teeth, that is oral sex. We also see manual stimulation on his part towards her, and we see other forms of sexual acts between the two throughout the book Song of Solomon. Why? Because they are serving one another in love. Sex is not designed to be selfish. That's what lust is. Lust is selfishness, but love is serving one another. How about this one? Sexual fulfillment versus sexual frustration. James 4.2 says, you desire, but you do not have. You murder and you covet because you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. Satan will take your desires. He will corrupt those desires and then he will use them against you and turn them around on you. He says, you cannot have. And so it leads to a frustration in your relationship. This is why people want it. They need it. They have to have it. And like Pavlov's dog, anytime they begin to see something on the internet or on social media, those sexual desires begin to well up inside of them. They have to have it. And when they don't get it, then all of a sudden it leads to a greater amount of frustration. This is why there's frustration in so many dating relationships, frustration in so many relationships where people hook up, shack up, break up, and then repeat the same process over and over again, where they lead with regret because there is a frustration you want and you do not have. So you end up murdering, you end up coveting, and you cannot obtain. That's wanting something that's not yours. That is, by definition, lust. And so you fight and you quarrel. But on the other hand, what we see in Song of Solomon, she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. That there is a fulfillment when it comes to their marriage. That their desires are for one another. That my beloved desires me and I desire him, and when it comes to their relationship, they are fulfilled, which leads to number three, they are satisfied. Ephesians 4.18 says they are darkened. That's sexual sin. People are darkened, the ways of this world and their understanding, alienated from the life of God, separated from him because of the ignorance that is in them. But you went to college and you got a degree, the Bible says ignorant. But I read an article in Huffington Post, the Bible says ignorance. But that's your perspective. The Bible says your perspective is ignorance. You are ignorant of the way in which God created, the way that God designed. You're ignorant to the ways and the word and the will of God, ignorance that is in them. Doesn't mean you're not smart, just means you're ignorant. Due to their hardness of heart. I don't like that. I don't want to hear it. Why? Because your heart has become hardened. And for those of you who are listening to Song of Solomon, we're seven weeks in, and I just feel inclined to tell you this. If you hear the information that we've been teaching over and over again through the seven weeks of Song of Solomon, you do not take it and apply it to your life. Satan will rob it, steal it from you, darken your eyes, and harden your hearts, and you'll be worse off than you were before. You want better marriages? Listen to the word and the will of God. If you want a bitter marriage and relationships that are tragic and flawed, harden your heart towards the will of God. 
They have become calloused. They have given themselves up to sensuality and to greed and to practice every kind of impurity. How many of you remember when you first held someone's hand? Do you remember that? When you were like fifth, fourth grade and you went on a field trip and you got a little palm, right? And your hands got all sweaty and you're holding hands. You got that little nervous pitter-patter in your heart. You're like, oh, right? Remember that? And then what happened? Pretty soon holding hands wasn't special for you anymore. Then you moved to kissing. And once you had your first kiss, you weren't satisfied holding their hand. Now you got a kiss, but then you wanted something else. You go to first face, second face. You're round in the corner. You're coming home. Once you have sex, you don't care about holding hands anymore. And then once you have passed that line, then you're no longer, when you give your, your partner a kiss, it doesn't mean anything to you anymore. Why? Because sex is always meant to go forward that your sexual desires, they grow and grow over time to where you're no longer satisfied for the way that things were, but now you have to considerably get more. This is why sex and marriage is a beautiful thing because as you grow in your lovemaking over time, it gets better and better because sex with your spouse over time continues to improve. But sex outside of marriage, things like pornography, eventually over time, because you can't go backwards, you have to go forward and further, it becomes a hard heart, darkened eyes, and it always gets worse. This is why when people view pornography, they might start with something that's very vanilla, but over time, it gets more deviant, it gets more abusive, and then you're watching things that we should be ashamed of. And that's why there are so many views of pornography that is devastating and abusive towards women, and then men end up viewing those things because that is the only way they can now get sexual pleasure because it is unsatisfied. The book of Proverbs says that the adulterous woman is an open grave. Her throat is an open grave. And in that death and hell and sheol are never satisfied because it always goes forward. This is the reason that when people are committing adultery on their spouse, they can't quit. They say, this is the last time. We're never gonna do it again. It's not gonna happen again. And then they do it again. This is why men who are abusive towards women, they always say, this is the last time. And then what happens? They do it again because it always progresses more and more and further and farther because lust is never satisfied. It needs more. It has to have more. And it don't care who it sacrifices. But love, on the other hand, is satisfied. She says this, my navel is a round bowl that never lacks mixed wine. She's ready. She's satisfied in the love and in the arms of her husband. That's what true love is. Then there's self-control versus slavery. Romans 6, 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, for just as once you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, it leads to more lawlessness that you can either become a slave by someone else forcing it on you or you surrender yourself as a slave to something else. People say, but I am not a slave. Yes, you are. If you weren't, then you could quit. This is why men who struggle with pornography, they know they need to quit, but they can't quit, and they're not going to give their phone to someone else to put some accountability on it because they think, oh, well, I have to have the internet. You know, there was a time in the world where people just didn't know things. <laughs> and so if you're struggling with pornography... Give your phone to somebody else. Let them help you in accountability. And if you don't want accountability, it's because you're a slave. 
This is sexual sin. This is cohabitation. People think, well, you know, the market's really bad and we can live together and we have dual incomes and, you know, we're going to get married one day and then they know what the word of God says, but they refuse to do it because now their lives are so coupled together. They don't think that they can actually make it without one another. And you say, move out. They're like, ah, no. And they say, get married. And they're like, ah, I'm not ready. Why? Because you're a slave to that relationship. Sexual sin is slavery. The big myth of the world is that it leads to freedom and to liberation. No, it actually leads to slavery in your life because you can't quit. You can't give up. And people say, but I have to have sex. I talk with young men all the time in our church and in other churches. They say, Byron, I know what the Bible teaches. I know that it's wrong, but I just have to have sex. I just need to be in a relationship. You don't need to be in a relationship if you can't keep your hands to yourself. Right? You need to get your relationship with Jesus right because you'll never be able to love that person the way that Jesus loves them if you're not loving Jesus first. They say, but I have to have sex. You know why you feel that way? Because you're a slave. You say, but I need it. Let us remind you this, that Jesus Christ was single for 33 years. Our Lord Jesus never had sex, was never in a relationship, that he never had intimacy with a woman, that he never did any of the things that are so cultural and casual for us today, but rather he lived a life of perfection just like us in every single way minus our sin. The author of Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with us in our weakness. For those of you who are struggling with sexual sin, with sexual desires, those of you who are struggling with temptation, you need the self-control that comes from the fruit of the spirit given to us by Jesus so you can live a life like Jesus. That's self-control. Jesus demonstrated this through his life of self-control. Listen, we all have to have self-control in our lives. Like me, I am attracted to women and I have a wife that I am attracted to, but I notice beautiful women, but I still have to surrender my sexuality through self-control. I can't just go out and have sex with whoever I want. No, I have channeled my desires towards my wife. Those of you need to do the same things. And if you don't have a spouse, channel your desires towards the Holy Spirit so you can demonstrate self-control. Here's Song of Solomon. She is dancing for her husband. And he waits 13 verses before he engages. You know what that's called? Self-control. Some of you ain't got that kind of self-control. But he watches. He blesses her. He speaks life into her. He's building her up. He is encouraging her. He is honoring her. And he is demonstrating self-control throughout the entire time. You need to put boundaries in your life, especially those of you who are single, who struggle with sexual temptation. Put boundaries in your life. For me, I don't have a passcode on my phone. My wife can access my phone at any time. She can read any of the text messages, any of the messages, not because she's you know, jealous or trying to trust me, but I have nothing to hide. Even in the staff, Trevor or Bo or Ethan or anyone who works up here, they know all of the passcodes to anything that I have because I have nothing to hide. They can access my computer. They can access my email. They can access my phone at any time because I want to live my life in a way where there's nothing to have. You know what sin causes you to do? Hide. That's what Genesis 3 Sin causes them to hide. There was shame and they were naked and they were afraid. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you're demonstrating self-control, there's no reason for you to hide. And so we live our lives in ways to where we don't have to be ashamed. This is why whenever I go meet with women who I'm discipling or mentoring in our church, right, I meet in the same place with them every single time because 
People there know me and they know that I'm not taking girls out on dates and dinners because they've met my wife, they know our staff, they know our team, they know my order. I go to the same place all the time. And so they know, oh, this is a business or this is a church meal meeting because I want to demonstrate self-control. I don't want to be another pastor in the long line of statistics where a pastor failed and gave a bad witness and testimony to a church because he couldn't find his pants and keep his hands to himself. But the same thing goes for all of us. We have to demonstrate self-control. How do we do that? By the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Keeping in step with the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Moving on, we see that love has godly desires, but lust has sinful desires. James, James 1.14, each person, when he is tempted, he is lured away and he is enticed by his own desires. Then his desire, whenever it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. See, Satan knows that he can't get you with a big lie. Nobody's going to wake up tomorrow and say, okay, here's the day that I cheat on my wife, shipwreck my marriage, beat my kids, get a disease, and lose my job. Nobody's going to say that. Nobody's going to be like, today's the day I ruined my life. Nobody says that. But you know what happens? Satan, he gets us with a little lie. That's what a counterfeit is. It looks just like the real thing. You think, well, nobody's going to notice. Nobody's going to see. It's consensual. This is a non-victimless crime. So nobody's going to worry or bother with that. I'm just looking. I'm not touching. And then what happens is eventually it grows more and more over time. Once you give in to the lie, all of a sudden it becomes pregnant with sin. This is when the man sees a beautiful woman at the aisle of the grocery store, and he knows he don't need no paraffin wax, but yet he turns down aisle six. He doesn't need anything down that aisle, but he still goes. What is that? That's the hook. You bite it. And then the next time it becomes easier for you to sin at work. So you see a beautiful girl in the office next to you. You walk by just to get a look, just to see what she's wearing. Then you go and you try to see, well, what's she working on? Now you smell her hair. And then all of a sudden, she's at the copy machine. So you want to have a conversation with her. Then let's go out for lunch. And then it's out for drinks. And then pretty soon, before you know it, you've crossed the line and you're at a hotel somewhere. People don't just wake up and commit adultery. Adultery starts in the heart years or months before it ever reaches a person's hands. When sin gives birth, it gives birth to death. Sexual sin will destroy your marriage. Sexual sin will destroy your relationships. It will destroy your life. It will destroy your family. It will destroy your children and relationships. It will destroy your life, your lineage, your legacy, your testimony, your witness. Sexual sin will destroy because that's what sin does. Sin leads to death. It is the death of the family. It is the death of the marriage. It is the death of the relationships. It is the severing of life and the bringing of of death. It is the counterfeit of what God creates. It always only brings death. Nothing good comes from sin. But what happens when you feed your godly desires? The desires that were put there by God, the teshuka from God. What happens when you honor those desires? Guess what you get? You get the real thing. You get life. You get joy. You get hope. You get healing. You get pleasure. You get the promises of God. You get the kingdom of God in your relationship. When you honor the godly desires, you are pulling heaven down into your home. When you give in to your sinful desires, you are literally bringing hell and death into that relationship. The psalmist says that pleasures and desires, O Lord, are you 
yours and they are in your right hand. God is not withholding anything from you. He is safeguarding, protecting, and preserving your sexuality so you can enjoy the greatest possible pleasure and desires that you will ever experience in your life. When you give into your godly desires, God gives you the desires of your heart. And those desires are to honor and to love and to bless and to serve him and to serve your spouse. Godly desires. Which leads us to the last point, is to honor God. Romans 12.1 clearly states, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable and honorable to God, which is your spiritual worship. People say, what does sex have to do with God? What does my body have to do with God? What does it matter what I do when it comes to God? It has everything to do because God made us God created us, and what we do with our bodies determines who or how and what we worship. Your body matters. Don't believe the lies of this world that your soul and your body are disconnected. No, what we do with our body has a profound impact on what we do with our souls, and we are to lay our lives down as living sacrifices, and you can either honor God or you can dishonor him. You can't do both at the same time. You can have the kingdom of God or you can have the kingdom of the world. You can have life or you can have death. You can have truth. You can have lies. You can have the real thing or you can have the counterfeit. But you can't have both at the same time. And we live in a culture where it is normal to dishonor God and honoring God is seen as being weird. But here's what I told you earlier in the series. If you want what everybody else has, do what everybody else does. If you want a relationship like we see in the culture where one in four marriages end in, one of two marriages end in divorce, where half of women are abused, where one in 10 men are molested, if you want what the world has, where 18% of pregnancies end in abortion, if you want what the world has, where 40% of children are going to go to bed tonight without a father in the home, if you want what the world has, do what the world does. But if you want something different, If you want something better, here's what you do. You honor God. You can seek first the kingdom of God or you can sin against him. You can't do both. You can honor God or you can dishonor God, but you can't do both. What you do with your body matters. God watches, God sees, because in Song of Solomon 5.1, here's what we read. Eat, friends, drink. This is the only time God speaks in Song of Solomon. He says, eat, friends, drink, and be what? Drunk with love. This is not a physical. This is a spiritual. That word love in the Hebrew is dod, which literally means a soul tie, a mingling of souls together, that God intended love to be between a man and a woman in a covenant mingled together that your souls are entwined with one another because it is a way in which you worship God. You can seek God with your spouse through sex as a gift or you can sin against him with sex as your God. But you can't do both. For those of you who grew up in cultures and you've believed the counterfeit lie that sex is a God to define your life by, you need to repent of the lie, open your eyes, let the Holy Spirit come into your hearts and to give you freedom. Here's what we see in Romans 12 too. You say, how do we do that? Romans 12 too actually gives us the answer. It says this. Do not be conformed to the ways of this world. What is that? The ways of this world. 
through the TV, through the media. I know this isn't popular. I know this isn't something that pastors preach on a lot. I know this is something that no one has taught you, but it's the patterns of this world. And you and me, we are conformed to these images and patterns of the world. So what do we need to do? We need to be transformed, changed, We need to be made new, made new creations. We need the Holy Spirit to come and do the work of transforming our minds by the renewal of our minds, that by testing you may discern the perfect will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What we need instead is a renewing of minds so we can test and see and we can discern the counterfeit from the truth, the real from the fake, the love from the lust, the truth versus the lie. We need a renewal of our minds. Do you know why I teach over this so much? Because when I was in fourth grade, walking down the street, a high school student drove by, and me and my friend, he handed us a pornography magazine. Fourth grade, 10, 11 years old. And I took that magazine, we laughed, we said it was gross, we threw it in the ditch, and that night I went back and picked it up and put it under my bed. And since the age of 11, 10, fourth grade, my mind has been changed through sex. As a teenager, it brought a lot of shame. As a young adult, it brought a lot of shame with a pornography addiction, sexual sin towards Ashley, almost brought devastation in our marriage when Ashley found out. And early on in ministry while serving in a church, I almost got fired because of pornography. Why do I talk about it so much? because it's something that we all struggle with. That we are grown up, conformed to the ways of this world. And here's how we broke it, by the renewing of our minds. The more and more I read my Bible, the more and more I prayed, the more and more I got involved in local church, my mind began to change. So how do we get a renewal of our mind? The first thing is this, we repent. This is what repentance is. In the, in the Greek, it literally means metanoia. That means a change of mind. That our whole life, we are living our life in this direction, conformed to the patterns of this world. That we are giving into sin, and to lies, and to death, and to destruction. That we are believing in counterfeits, trusting and hoping in false idols and gods. And then the Holy Spirit wakes us up, opens our eyes to where we change our mind, our life, our direction from living towards sin. And now we begin chasing and loving, serving Jesus as the truth of our Savior. And here's what Jesus says. The truth will set you free. And when you know the truth, you're set free from sexual sin. And as you begin to renew your mind, the metanoia, the repentance, it brings about change. And here's how we do that. Number one, we read our Bibles together. As you read your Bible, your mind will begin to change. You'll discern truth from lies, God's thoughts, God's ways, God's words, God's will for your life. This word is true and trustworthy. It never changes and it will never fail you. This word is true. Second, pray together. Repent of your sins. Confess who Jesus is. The places where you have believed lies and ungodly beliefs in your heart. You pray, you confess. And then lastly, there's a church that loves you and welcomes you, that will walk alongside of you and give you a hope and a reason, something to believe in bigger than yourself. The way that I was able to overcome sexual sin was to read my Bible with my wife through praying with my wife and with elders in the church, and then number three, finding a good local church that would walk with me through inner healing and freedom. 
And the more I began to serve, the more I began to worship, the more I began to experience life change that only comes from Jesus. You need a renewal of your mind. Sex is not God, but sex is also not gross. Instead, according to the renewal of mind, Sex is a gift. Do you know why Song of Solomon talks so much about garden illustration? Where she's like, the pomegranates, the clusters on the vine, the palm trees. Do you know why it talks so much about garden illustration? Because what Song of Solomon is trying to do is show us the way back to the garden. Back to the Garden of Eden. Back to the way that God created it to be. Back to the way God designed it to be. Back to the way that we can enjoy sex as a gift. The way God intended the way God created, the way that God wants to bless you with. Sex is not gross. Sex is not God. Sex is a gift for us to enjoy in marriage with one another. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. 